Hi, everyone. I'm Barrett Guillen, and this is Dare to Lead. I'm up here at the office. I was just going to start with a little sneak peek into what's been going on with us this week. We're still not fully back, but there are a few of us here from time to time. And this week we got the most special delivery. We got four pallets full of our new book, Atlas of the Heart, that comes out November 30th. Brian and Cookie have been here trucking boxes up and down the stairs getting ready for launch, and we could not be more excited about this book, y'all. It's so beautiful inside and out. It's really a culmination of Brene's work over the last 25 years. I think you're going to love it. More to come. I think we're going to talk more about the book on the podcast in the upcoming weeks, but I did get to sneak away so that I could introduce the podcast for you this week. Woo, and it is such a good one. This is part one of a two-part series that Brene is doing with James Clear on habits and his book, Atomic Habits, which has sold more than 5 million copies worldwide and has been translated into more than 50 languages. So many of us have read Atomic Habits, and it's so good, but in this episode, we're going to get to meet the man behind the book. James shares his story with us and gives us some more insight into how he develops his deep understanding of the importance of consistency over intensity when establishing habits to last. Y'all, I took like literally almost six pages of notes during this episode. It's so good and so helpful, very tactical. I really love it. And it's interesting because most of the time when we do a two-part series, we get into the conversation and then we decide, oh, we need to have one more episode. But Brene knew before we even got started with James that she had so many questions she wanted to ask him that we just asked him from the beginning, can we do two episodes? And he was all in. In this first episode, they talk about identity-based habits and how we can become the architects of our habits, not the victims of them. And then they dig into some real strategies about how to make that happen. They also talk about the intersection of his work and Brene's work the collective stories we all make up, and how those stories really can trigger some shame responses that set us up for failure. But they also cover how our mindsets and our systems can set us up for success. Just a side note on that, if you've heard Brene speak or do any events in the last several months, you'll know that one thing that she's been talking a lot about, a very specific quote from James's book, You do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. We have been so obsessed with this quote. We've really been thinking about our own systems and how that applies to all the systems that we build here at Beberg. And it's been so helpful for us. It is exactly the type of conversation we all hoped it would be. And we're so glad you're here. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit more about James. James Clear is a writer and speaker focused on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. He is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits. James is a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work has been featured in places like Time Magazine, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and on CBS This Morning. His popular 321 email newsletter is sent out each week to more than 1 million subscribers. You can learn more and sign up 
at jamesclear.com. And of course, we'll link from our episode page on brenebrown.com. So let me start by saying that I'm so excited that you're here. I have a thousand questions for you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Sometimes we go into these podcasts and I get halfway through it and I'm like, we should make this two sessions. But I, from the very beginning was like, this has got to be a part one and part two because you can't fix me in one part. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I have a lot to fix too. So we're going to be here all day. Great. All right. We always start with the same thing. Tell us your story. Sure. How about I share like some inflection points kind of along the way? I'd love that. I'm an Ohio boy. I was born and raised in Hamilton, Ohio. I live in Columbus, Ohio now. Love it here. My family's from here. Growing up, I spent a lot of time outside. My grandparents owned a farm. I like ran around in the woods there and yeah, just kind of cultivated my love for the outdoors. When I was four, I saw a cowboy on TV and decided that I wanted to have a lasso and do that too. So I took a screwdriver and tied it to a piece of string and was swinging it around my head in the backyard. (laughs) My mom saw that and was like, no, no, no. And she couldn't get out there in time, but I cut my eyelid and got some stitches from that. So I was spending a lot of time outdoors and just kind of like trying to be a fun, crazy little kid. Yeah. And played sports growing up, baseball, basketball. I played football for one year. In football, there are kids who are getting hit and kids who are giving hits. And I was always getting hit. So I was less interested in doing that for a long time. I love school. I was always really interested in school and learning and the sciences. I ended up majoring in biomechanics in college. And probably the first big inflection point for me was going to Denison University, which is where I went for undergrad. I got a full scholarship to go there. And that was like kind of this big moment for me because we never could have afforded it otherwise. And that was where I met my wife, which obviously was this life-changing thing. Also, was where I kind of came into my own as a baseball player and ended up having a good career there. And that was a very transformative period in my life. And the first time that I was asked to play a really significant leadership role, being the captain of the team for the last two years and ended up being an academic All-American. And then I went to grad school. And that's probably the second big inflection point. I went to Ohio State and got my MBA. But while I was there, there was this symposium. It's called the St. Gallen Symposium. And it was in Switzerland. And they sent an email out to everybody in the program, just said, hey, if you want to apply to this, you can. It's like this essay competition. And I had never been abroad and uh, was really interested in doing that. And so I tried and just threw my hat in the ring. And they select, I don't know, about 100 kids from around the world. And I was one of them the first year. And so I got to go. And then the second year, I decided to try it again. And I ended up winning the thing. And the first place prize was $10,000. And that was the money that I used to start my business when I got out of school. If I hadn't won that, I probably just would have got a regular job. And so that ended up being a very, wow, put me on a very different trajectory. Yeah. That was the money I lived off of for the first like six to nine months. Ended up not being enough. I moved back in with my parents for a few months. And then after about a year and a half, I had figured it out enough that I could go out on my own and get an apartment and do my thing. So. That essay was a really important part in my entrepreneurial journey. And then deciding to start an email list was probably the next like big thing. So this was November 12th, 2012. I wrote my first article on jamesclear.com. And I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday for the next three years after that. And it was really that writing habit that kind of led to the growth of my site and my audience and everything that sort of has come afterward. That audience grew, I think I had about 200,000 subscribers after a couple years, and that was what got me the book deal with Penguin Random House and ultimately became Atomic Habits, which is probably the last like kind of big inflection point. And so I worked on the book for three years, and then it came out in 2018 and has gone on and, and done really well since then. So those are some of the bigger highlights and moments uh, along the way. I already have a lot of questions. I read your book when it first came out. Was totally blown away. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, felt hopeful, called out, pissed off, (laughs) grateful, a myriad of emotion about the book. I was rereading it for our interview right now. I want to go back to high school and I want to go back to your sophomore year in high school. And it's so strange because my son is a sophomore in high school now. Mm. And reading that story as a mom of a 
athlete, uh, sophomore, almost made me sick. It was just, tell me about that experience. So my final day of my sophomore year in high school, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was an accident, slipped out of my classmate's hands. He took a full swing. I was kind of standing on the third base side, sort of behind home plate. And the bat slipped out of his hands and rotated through the air, sort of like a helicopter, and struck me right between the eyes. So broke my nose, broke my ethmoid bone, which is the bone behind your nose, fairly deep inside your skull. Shattered both eye sockets. I looked down and I saw like red on my clothes. You know, it was like my nose was bleeding. I had a friend, a classmate who literally took the shirt off his back and gave it to me to kind of plug up my nose and stumbled back down into the school to the nurse's office. And I was sort of unaware of how seriously I had been injured. I was walking and moving around, but kind of out of it. And they sat me down and asked me, you know, what year is it? I said, 1998. It was actually 2002. Who was the president? I said, Bill Clinton was actually, you know, George Bush. Although it would have been Bill Clinton if it was 1998. So I was like, kind of there. And you're consistent uh, in your wrong answers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My wrong answers were consistent. Then they asked me my mom's name and it took me 10 seconds to answer. And I tried to play it off, you know, like it was easy or something. And that was kind of the last thing I remember. So I went unconscious, swelling in my brain got to the point where I was like struggling with basic functions, like swallowing and breathing. They put me on a stretcher, took me to the local hospital. When I got there, I lost the ability to breathe on my own. My dad met up with me at the hospital and my mom eventually met up with him there as well. Then I had my first seizure of the day. I'd end up having three more. And the doctors kind of got together at that point and decided this is too serious for the local hospital to handle. We need to fly you to a larger facility. So they put me on a stretcher and wheeled me out to the helipad. But as that was happening, and this is actually, Brene, your point about being a mom and kind of going through this. My dad split off and went to go get my brother and sister and kind of get them handled and passed off to family and friends. My mom came with me on the helicopter. And as we're going to the helipad, the stretcher hit a bump on the sidewalk and the wheel caught and the intubation tube popped out. And at that point, they were pumping breasts into me by hand. And so I just think about my mom in that moment. I mean, she was a nurse and deals really well with stuff like that, but how I don't know, just terrible the situation that is for her to be standing here on this street that she's probably driven on hundreds of, of times before, gone past this hospital. And here we are, like, I can't breathe on my own. The intubation tube isn't there. The nurses are trying to scramble to, you know, get everything placed again. Thankfully, after a minute or two, they were able to kind of get the situation under control and get me on the helicopter. And, you know, she held my hand the whole way down as we flew to the larger hospital in Cincinnati. We landed on the roof and there's a team of, you know, I obviously was not conscious for any of this. I'm told this after the fact team of doctors and nurses, maybe a dozen of them that ran out and like take me and wheel me off to surgery. They take my mom off to a waiting room where she meets back up with my dad. And my parents were actually no strangers to like this particular hospital. So earlier, about 10 years earlier, when I was uh, five, my sister was three and she had been diagnosed with leukemia. And this is the same hospital where she received her cancer treatment. And so when my parents go into that waiting room and Mm -hmm. uh, they take me into surgery, there's a priest that comes up to them. And uh, it was the same priest that they had met with 10 years earlier. As they're getting ready to put me under the knife and undergo surgery, they decide that my vital signs are too unstable. I had another seizure. So they placed me into a medically induced coma. And basically, I was just stabilized for the night. The next day, they decide that everything is now under control enough to release me from the coma. So they go ahead and do that. And uh, eventually, once I wake back up, I tell one of the nurses that, you know, I've lost the ability to smell. So she says, okay, well, why don't you blow your nose and smell this apple juice box? Like, you know, you probably have all kinds of blood and stuff up in there. So I do that, and my sense of smell returns. But when I blew my nose, it forced air through the cracks in my shattered eye socket. And so now my left eye is like bulging out of the socket. And I know it just keeps getting worse. (laughs) They brought the ophthalmologist in, they bring all the doctors back in. They're like, okay, I think the good news is your eye will go back into place. The bad news is we don't know how long that will take. Uh, And so it ended up taking about a month or two uh, for it to kind of gradually recede. I had double vision for weeks. And 
So kind of the back end of this story is like, you know, eventually I was released from the hospital. I couldn't drive a car for the next nine months. I was on seizure medication for most of the next year. I had double vision for weeks. Eventually my eye returned back into place and the swelling reduced. I had to wait about a week before I could go into surgery. At that point, my nose had been broken long enough that it began to set in the broken position. So they actually had to re-break it to get it back. Thankfully, most of the fractures did not require like plastic surgery them to, you know, reset things. Like they mostly just needed to let the fracture line. But, you know, it was the most intense injury I've ever experienced, of course. And it was obviously a very challenging time because I just wanted to go back and be a normal high school kid and go play baseball again and go to school and drive. You know, I just got my license. Like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do any of that. And so looking back on it now, it was the period in my life where I was most forced into starting small, where I was most forced into saying, look, you literally just have to focus on what you can do today. I mean, my first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line. And so, you know, eventually over the next four or five years, I got back to it and started driving a car and got back on the baseball field and ended up weaseling my way onto a college team and ended up having a good career. But it was a very slow journey along the way. Let me tell you where you lose every single person I know. So over the next four or five years, (laughs) through a sequence of small gains, were you one of us before this happened? Were you an intensity over consistency kind of person before this happened? I mean, was this the change? I think I'm still kind of that person a little bit. So like that phrase you just used, intensity over consistency. A lot of people think what they need is intensity, but what they really need is consistency. You know, everybody's like, oh, I want to be a meditator. Let me go do a silent meditation retreat. It's like, actually just meditate for one minute and let's do that for a couple of weeks and try to get a foundation built. Or intensity is like running the marathon consistency is being a runner and showing up every day, even if it's just running for a little bit. And I fall into that trap too. You do? Yeah, of course. Like everything that I write about is mostly a reminder to myself of what I should be doing. (laughs) Same. (laughs) I mean, my publisher had a great line when I was working on Atomic Habits. I was talking about how much I was struggling and how like kind of this, the great irony of writing a book about habits and having it wreck your personal habits in the process. And (laughs) she was like, you know, we write the books we need. And yeah, that's true. That's, you know, I definitely have had that experience. So it was a process of small gains over four or five years. And there were all kinds of different forces and things that were helping me along the way. I mean, that first little bit just coming out of the injury, what I really needed was a positive mindset and to feel like you're not where you want to be now. But if you keep showing up and just try to have a good day today, try to have one good day. And I saw that kind of mindset modeled a lot from my grandpa and my parents. And that was really, that was the thing I needed then. And I was very fortunate to have it. And then a few years later, once I got to college, I had really great teammates. Teammates are kind of like family. You don't get to choose them. Like you just come in with whoever they happen to recruit. And I just happened to get really lucky and have good teammates who were also there to provide like what I needed and the social support that I needed at the time. And so uh, a lot of this was just being fortunate to be in and around the environments that I needed to be around when I needed them. But each day was just, you know, just try to have a good day today. Just try to take one small step today. I want to read something you wrote. You said, we all face challenges in life. This injury was one of mine and the experience taught me a critical lesson. Changes that seem small and unimportant at first will compound into remarkable results if you're willing to stick with them for years. We all deal with setbacks, but in the long run, the quality of our lives depends on the quality of our habits. With the same habits, you'll end up with the same results. With better habits, anything is possible. I think that's mostly true. I mean, certainly the point about like, we all deal with challenges and setbacks. I mean, we just spent the last few minutes kind of talking through my story here. I generally consider myself to have been very lucky and blessed in life. I've had to deal with this injury, but I think I've had it pretty easy for the most part. And we all have things that come into our lives unexpectedly. And I don't know, there's some quality of bad luck where like it doesn't need to be helped. It'll just find its way into your life anyway. But good luck sort of needs to be ushered along. You know, it needs to be helped. It's like more like an open door and you have to still choose to walk through it. And 
habits are part of that process, you know, showing up each day and making one small choice or trying to do something in a slightly better way. And then watching that compound and multiply over time, I think it's a pattern that you see show up again and again in life. In many different areas of life, changes seem relatively small and insignificant on a daily basis. So knowledge, for example, the person who reads for an extra 10 minutes today. Well, reading for 10 minutes today does not make you a genius. But the person who always finds 10 minutes to read each day, yeah, over 10 or 20 or 30 years, that can be a pretty meaningful difference in insight and wisdom. Productivity, the person who always gets one extra task done each day or knocks one more thing off the to-do list. Look, doing one extra thing does not make you an all-star, but over the cumulative portion of days and weeks and months and years over the span of a career, yeah, again, it can be like a pretty meaningful difference. You know, I kind of like to joke, especially with like fitness stuff. Yeah. The difference between eating a burger and fries for lunch today or eating a salad on any given day is like pretty insignificant. Your body looks the same in the mirror at the end of the night. The scale hasn't really changed. It's only two or five or 10 years later that you're like, oh, those daily choices really do add up. It's kind of like you go through your daily routine and then like three years later, it's like, knock, knock, who's there? Oh, the consequences of my past decisions. You know, it's like, turns out that (laughs) stuff creeps up on you. And I think we feel that in so many different ways in so many different areas in life. And uh, so that pattern of what starts out small and seems relatively insignificant grows and accumulates into something bigger. We see it again and again. And I think we all like know this. We all have felt this just from going through life. And it's a double-edged sword, right? Like your habits can either build you up or cut you down. And I think that's a strong reason, a good argument for like why you want to understand what they are and how they work and how to design them so that you can be the architect of your habits and not the victim of them. Okay. This whole idea of compounding over time and habits, it's almost subversive to our culture that we live in today. If it's not big and flashy, if you're not doing the Iron Man then, you know, your 10 minute jog around the neighborhood means nothing. Mm. You know, it's very counterculture. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Can we build a habit together? Sure. Like, can we, okay, let's build a habit. First of all, what do we get wrong about habits? Before we go in to build it, what's the mythology that we need to dispel? I mean, I think a very common thing that people talk about is, oh, how long does it take to build a habit? Does it take 21 yeah. days or 30 days or you yes. know 90 days? And you hear all kinds of courses and challenges and stuff packaged around those kind of ideas. Totally. And I think the upside of a challenge like that is that it can get you moving. It can get you started. So there's nothing wrong with that. But the downside is it implicitly tells you that there is a finish line to be crossed, that be healthy for 30 days and then you won't have to worry about it anymore or do this thing for 21 days and then it'll be fixed. But I think the real answer, the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit 
is forever because if you stop doing it, then it's no longer a habit. <sighs> and what kind of what I'm trying to get at with that is you're looking for a sustainable change, a lifestyle change, a non-threatening change, something that you can integrate into your daily routine and make it part of your new normal. And once you start to look at changes through that lens, you select things in a different way. But if it's just about crossing the finish line or just about doing something impressive for 30 days, then you attack it from a totally different angle. And if you're actually trying to do something that becomes part of your lifestyle, then you start to see a little bit more clearly the value of making a small change or doing something that is more uh, reasonable or sustainable. Okay. So how do people choose the habits that they want to create? I mean, I guess we have default unconscious habits, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good distinction actually that you're making. So uh, the first is, look, your brain's building habits all the time, right? Tying your shoes, brushing your teeth. Like they're, they're just a countless number of habits. You unplug the toaster after each use or every time you pick yeah. up a pair of barbecue tongs, you tap them together. Like there, I mean, there's just like an endless list of things that we do like that each day. And your brain is going to automate those behaviors all the time so that you can conserve energy and not have to waste time and attention thinking about these tasks that you do again and again. It's just an efficiency move. It's like going on automatic pilot to save fuel. I think that's right. Yeah. U ultimately, okay. humans are biological organisms and we consume energy and we need energy to survive. So any move that we can make to conserve energy or automate things or save time and attention from a biological standpoint puts us in a better position to sure. you know, ultimately persist. So I think that's the that's what your brain is doing behind the scenes. Then I, I don't think when most people are talking about changing their habits, they're talking about that lump of behaviors. Most of the time okay. they're talking about something different. They're saying, yep. I want to build the habit of writing every day or of going to the gym four days a week or whatever the more goal-oriented part of the process is. Aspirational. Right, yes. So how do people select those was your question. And I think... There's a whole class of answers of what people usually do. So we imitate people around us. We do things for status and prestige. We do things out of hope of for approval and respect. We do things because they think they will paint us in a positive light. We do things because they think they will advance our career. Like there's all kinds of forces that are driving us to choose certain habits. And then I think there's like a different line of questioning that we can ask that might be more useful in some sense. I don't think that status and prestige and all that has no value. Like certainly it is valuable in some way. But the angle or the line of attack that I like to take is something that I call identity-based habits. And identity-based habits is basically encouraging you to start, instead of thinking about the result that you want or the outcome that you're trying to achieve, start with the type of person that you wish to become. Mm -hmm. And so who is the type of person that can do this thing that I want to do? So just to give you a classic kind of habits or weight loss example, all kinds of people will say, I want to lose weight. Okay, so they start with the result. They say, I want to lose 40 pounds. And that's the outcome. That's the goal. And so if I want to lose 40 pounds, then I need to come up with a plan. I'm going to go to the gym four days a week. I'm going to eat this food. And then the assumption is if I do that, then I'll be the kind of person I want to be. That if I'm able to achieve that, then maybe I'll be happy. And my argument is let's invert that process and start with saying, okay, who is the type of person that could lose 40 pounds? And maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so let's, that's fine. Let's put the goal on the shelf then. Forget about the weight, forget about the number, forget about the judgment and the guilt and all this other stuff. And let's just focus on being the kind of person who doesn't miss workouts, focus on fostering that identity. And you can imagine a version of that for all kinds of different habits. Who is the type of leader that I want to be? Like maybe it's the type of person who shares praise with their team each week. And so then you're focused on that kind of habit, not necessarily on some other more quantifiable metric at work. I'm going to say add a girl four times a day. Like, <laughs> right, exactly. Right, like so, yeah. And so basically it just requires a little bit more of a introspection of who's the type of person that I wish to become. And the reason that I feel like this ties so neatly, so cleanly back into habits is that every action we take is like a vote for the type of person we wish to become. Okay, so, whoa, 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 whoa. You got to say that again. Every action we take is like a vote for the type of person we wish to become, right? Your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So 
Every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Every day that you send an girl to somebody on your team, you embody the identity of someone who is a caring leader. Every day that you go to the gym, even if it's just for five minutes, you embody the identity of someone who doesn't miss workouts. So in this way, our behaviors are like they're casting votes for the story that we're telling ourselves. And I think ultimately, at like the deepest level, this is the real reason that habits matter. You know, everybody talks about habits mattering because of what they can get you like from an external productivity standpoint. Oh, well, they can help you lose weight or they can help you make more money or they can help you get more done. And that stuff's great. It's true. Habits can do all that, which is really great. But the real reason that habits matter is that they reinforce the kind of person that you see yourself as being. They cast votes for a certain type of identity. And if you start casting votes for a more useful story, for a more empowering story, then you have every reason in the world to believe that. And this is, I think this is where it's a little bit different than what you often hear. Like you often hear people say something like, uh, fake it till you make it. Oh God, I really hate that. You know, fake it till you make it is asking you to believe something positive about yourself, which on the surface, not a terrible thing, but it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion, right? Like at some point, your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you're saying you are and what you're actually doing. And so behavior and beliefs are a two-way street. Like the way you act influences what you believe about yourself. And the things you believe influence the actions you take. But my argument is to let the behavior lead the way. To start by doing one small push-up or by writing one sentence or by meditating for one minute and to know that in that moment, you have undeniable evidence that you were that kind of person, that you casted a vote for that version of your story. And just to continue the voting metaphor, like any election, it doesn't have to be unanimous, right? You don't have to be perfect. But the more that you start to cast votes and build up evidence of that type of story, the more the scales start to tip in favor of that. And I think eventually, you do actually come to believe that about yourself. You have to admit, you know, look, I'm showing up and doing this over and over again. Like this is obviously part of who I am. And I think that's the real reason that habits matter. So this is so interesting. I want to talk about the intersection of your work and my work a little bit. Sure. While we're talking about this piece of habit making. It seems to me, I mean, true, false, maybe, what are your thoughts? It seems to me that the pursuit of a habit that involves other people's perception is a much quicker walk to kind of the shame shit show to Mm. me. Like, so we'll just take something real that I'm trying to build right now. So I'm really trying to do strength training. I'm at that age right now where I tried to pick up my son and I was like, I can't even lift him off the ground. My husband's like, well, yeah, he's like six feet tall now. Like he's, you're not supposed to be able to, because I was, you know, I was thinking I could lift him up a little bit, but it wasn't just my son I can't lift up. I'm just getting to the age where you either use it and do something with it, or it, it's going to be really hard to catch up. And so I don't really care externally what people think about that, but I want to be a strong person. Mm. I want to be a physically strong person. It seems to me when you form a habit to reach a goal that is about what other people think of you, it seems like risky shame business to me. Sure feels that way, doesn't it? It's like you're a victim of your own expectations, but you didn't come up with them. It's like somebody else came up with the expectation. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of tricky stuff going on there. We do all these kind of like psychological games that we play with ourselves where we are a victim of the expectations that we think other people have. But then what I've noticed is that I fall into this trap like everybody else. You're like worried what people will think of you or you're doing it because of how you think it will look to other people. And you think, oh, maybe then, you know, they'll respect me more or approve of me more or whatever. And if you were to ask me, just pick somebody out and you're like, do you care about what Brene thinks like in this case? And I'd be like, well, no, I'm not like worried about her specifically. It's not of any individual. It's like the collective you that you're worried about. And as soon as you realize that, you're like, oh, I'm making all of this up. Because, you know, if you pick any individual person, you're like, are you worried about their opinion on this? You're like, well, not really. Like, they would probably be understanding. Or 
they're not the person that would think that. And they're like, oh, this is just this collective story that you have now manufactured about what they think I'm going to do or will have achieved or whatever. And easy to identify that or easier to talk about it, harder to not feel that way. For sure. But I think as soon as you do that, you're you're setting, yes, you're setting yourself up for more guilt, shame, failure, you know, all of those feelings. And it's mostly just like a story that you're telling yourself in your head. It really is. And it's one of those things I wonder sometimes if what we want that collective nameless thing to think of us is what we're trying to think of us. It's tricky. I love that question. Like what's the unfulfilled need behind your desire to work so hard? And wait, say that again. What's the unfulfilled need behind your desire to work so hard? Oh, I think when I was first working on Atomic Habits, the unfulfilled need, it was something in this like sphere where it was like, I want to be recognized as like doing great work, or I want the people that I respect to respect the work that I create, or I want to feel like I'm approved of and that like I'm enough that I did something that was worthwhile. Yeah. And the book has come out and it's done really well and sold millions of copies and done all that stuff. And it's funny that like now that's not the stuff that it, like I feel satisfied by with the process. It's like, that's what was driving me, but it's actually just like feeling that I did my best on it. That knowing that I like didn't leave anything on the table with it. That's actually the yeah. thing that feels, that feels best in retrospect. Um, and it's like, man, you wish you could have just bottled that up when you're in the middle of the process and not, guilted yourself and felt so shameful and been so yeah. hard on yourself while you were doing the work, you wish you could have just realized, are you doing your best? If the answer is yes, then that's enough. And if I could have just told myself that, I probably would have worried much less about it during those three years when I was working on it. But I don't know. It's like easier to see in hindsight, but hard to notice in the moment. It's interesting what you're saying, because a lot of people argue that the book was so good and has been so successful because you were holding that knife up against your throat. Mm. But all the data show us that you survived that pressure. But many people who have amazing books inside them don't actually survive that pressure long enough to write the book that we all need to read. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was looking for a lot of external validation when I started writing as well. Now it's just, does it make a contribution? Am I proud of myself is all I ask now, yep, yep. you know? I think actually what you're getting at there is something that I, I feel like this is maybe it's weird because it internally, it feels like a weakness, but I think actually it's maybe a strength for me, which is that fear is the gas pedal for me, not the brake. So for a lot of people, the feeling of fear of not being enough or worried that's not good enough or whatever the version of that it takes on for you is a reason to stop doing the thing. But for me, it's a reason to work harder. And so it's mm. like, if I'm worried this isn't good enough, that means I need to do even more on it and then it will finally be good enough and I can get it out. And somehow, even though you never feel like it's quite there and never quite finished, there is enough there for me to ship it. And so it is a shame. I think it's a feeling that everybody experiences in some form. And yeah, how many great works are we robbed of purely because of fear being the brake instead of the gas pedal or yeah. not being able to push through that? And how many books are sitting on laptops because they're not like, I've never published a perfect book and <laughs> I've written a lot of them. So it's just, it's not a thing. All right. So the first thing is identity-based habit, right? Who do I want to be? What's next? I think that's a good place to start, a good question to start with. The other thing that I really like about it is that it encourages you to walk around with a series of questions. So okay. something that's unhelpful about advice is that advice is very brittle in the sense that it's context dependent. So even if somebody gives you a very good idea, it generally is only a good idea if your situation or context is relatively similar to the one where it worked yeah. for them. But a question is different. A question is much more flexible and resilient. So um, as an example, one question I like is, what would a healthy person do? And this is a woman in the book that I talk about. She used this question when she was going through her weight loss journey and she just went through life and she was like deciding what to order at lunch. She would say, what would a healthy person do? And then she'd make that selection. Or if she was in between meetings and was like, what would a healthy person do? Would they take the taxi three blocks or would they walk? And she's like, okay, I'll walk. And so it's like kind of adaptable to the situation. And I like questions for that reason. And once you come up with the identity that you're trying to foster, 
there's often a question or two that will naturally fall out of that that you can carry around with you. So I think that's sort of the primer, the place to start. Now, the next thing that you want to do, and this is kind of, we have a long laundry list of strategies we can apply here so we can get into whatever ones you're interested in. But the general approach is we're trying to build a system. And this is the next big pillar or sort of idea in my philosophy, which is you want to focus on developing a system, not achieving a goal or an outcome. And Okay, I got to stop you right there. Got to say it one more time. It's such a critical piece of your book. Say it one more time for me. You want to focus on building a system, developing a process, rather than trying to achieve a goal or an outcome. And I think the kind of like pithy way that I would summarize this is, look, the truth is you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. And so often in life, we are told that we need to be more ambitious. You need to 10x your vision, think bigger, try to increase your output, set a bigger goal. And look, the truth is, setting the goal is kind of the easy part. Like I can set a goal right now to sell 20 million books. Took me three seconds. Like the goal is not the hard part. It's building a system that executes on that and that kind of carries you inevitably toward that goal. And you find this like weird sort of dynamic in many different areas of life. Like take athletics. If you look at the Olympic Games, pretty much every athlete there presumably has the goal of winning the gold medal. The goal is not the thing that makes the difference in their performance. It's the system they follow, their nutrition, their training, their coaching, how much sleep they got the night before, like all that kind of stuff. Or if you have a job opening and 100 candidates apply for the job, presumably every candidate has the goal of getting the job. Again, it's the way they prepare, their network, their experience, like how they do in the interview, all sorts of other stuff that feeds into that. And so it's not that goals are useless. Goals are quite useful for setting a sense of direction and developing a sense of clarity. They're good for filtering too. You know, if somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I have this interesting opportunity, you can sort of run it through the filter of your goal and say, well, does this help me get closer to that or not? And if not, it's easier to say no. But once you've determined like, what am I optimizing for? And that actually, I just mentioned a minute ago, I think questions are really valuable. I think that's Mm -hmm. another question that's very valuable. What am I optimizing for? Different people are optimizing for very different things. Sometimes you optimize for money. Sometimes you optimize for free time. Sometimes you optimize for love and connection. There's all sorts of different stuff. But you need to determine what the answer to that is. And that can effectively be your goal. But once you have an idea that like, we need to sort of metaphorically speaking, set it on the shelf and spend 90, 95% of your time focused on building a better system. I think if we were going to connect this back to habits, what I would say is, Okay, let's put a little finer language on this. So what is your goal? Your goal is your desired outcome. What is your system? It's the collection of daily habits that you follow. And if there is ever a gap between your system and your goal, (laughs) if there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your daily habits will always win, right? Like almost by definition, your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results. Wait a second, say that again. Your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results. Right? Like now, <gasps> whatever <gasps> system you've been running for the last six months, year, two years, pick, pick whatever time frame you want, whatever habits you've been following for that period of time have carried you inevitably to the results that you have right now. And sometimes if we want to get really, really technical about it, we can push back a little bit. Okay, fine. Your habits are not the only thing that influences outcomes in life, right? We have luck, we have randomness, good luck, misfortune, whatever. But I do think it's true, especially over a broad span of time, your life bends in the direction of your habits. You start to create this arc. Every day you have the choice to make a good choice or a bad one, to build a good habit or a bad one, to spend the next chunk of time in an effective way or an ineffective way. And you get to choose that each time. And so the system that you keep running again and again, it starts to pull you. It's like this form of gravity pulls you toward whatever the system is designed for. And so, yes, first, let's try to ask ourselves, who's the type of person I want to be? What's the type of identity I want to reinforce? And then next, let's ask ourselves, what is the system that I can design that carries me inevitably toward that identity that reinforces the kind of person that I wish to become? And uh, as I said, there are many different strategies we can use for trying to tweak that system or kind of adjust the gears, the individual habits in the overall machine. Okay, I want to go back. I have all these typed out, highlighted, post-it noted. 
I must tell you right now, Barrett, how many places have you seen the post-it note? You do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. All over. <laughs> all over my house, all over my office. I'm going to have a mural painted in our office that says that. Is oh. that. Do you think that's your most quoted thing? Yeah, probably. Uh, you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Habits of the compound interest of self-improvement. That's another one. Or oh God, that's a good one. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Those oh, three are probably the... Just shut up. Okay. <laughs> Those are, I mean, God. Okay. I want to read these. Just to reiterate, for those of y'all who are experiencing highly emotional reactivity to this, like myself, this is, I'm quoting you from your book. Goals are about the results you want to achieve. Systems are about the processes that lead to those results. That's true. Okay. James writes, the purpose of setting goals is to win the game. The purpose of building systems is to continue playing the game. True long-term thinking is goal-less thinking. It's not about any single accomplishment. It's about the cycle of endless refinement and continuous improvement. Ultimately, it's your commitment to the process that will determine your progress. You know, we talked a couple minutes ago about guilt and shame and, you know, all these yeah. feelings kind of weaving their way in. And this is one of the things that I try to push back on a little bit with all of the goal-related strategies and stuff is they all kind of like encourage you to feel bad if you haven't achieved the goal yet. It's this weird yes. thing where you like, you set this goal for yourself and then you're like, once I get there, then I'll finally be enough. I had this when I was, you know, this is coming from someone, by the way, I'm basically like giving myself therapy here, right? Like I, yeah. I am a very goal oriented person for a long time, right? I set goals for the weights I wanted to lift in the gym, for the numbers I wanted to hit in my business. For a long time, I thought if I could just get my business featured in the New York times, then I'll be set, right? You like come up with all these kind of things like that. And you think, okay, once this, I achieve this milestone off in the distance, then I can be happy. And one of the things I'm trying to get at with that little passage you just read, long-term thinking is goalless thinking. Guess what? You can be happy with who you are right now, right? And like still continue to work toward these things that you're working that are important to you. I like to think about the metaphor of like a seed or an acorn where it's an acorn and then you plant it and it becomes a sapling and it like breaks through the ground and then it, you know, it grows a little bit further and it's like this immature tree. And then eventually it's this like mighty oak and at no point along the way do you criticize it for what it is. You don't look at the acorn and be like, man, what an idiot. You're not a grand oak yet. Oh, how terrible. You're just <laughs> a sapling. We don't look at it like it's this unfinished, like terrible thing. And yet we do that with ourselves all the time. And yet, and this is, I think, the crucial piece, the acorn never stops growing. The tree never stops growing. Not because it's not what it should be, not because it's unsatisfied with how it is at that time, but just because that's what a tree does. And I think that that's like, we can also try to apply that to our own lives. Like not having this guilt or shame about not achieving a goal yet or feeling terrible about where you're at, like you can release all of that. And it doesn't mean that you have to be stagnant. It doesn't mean that you can't improve anymore. You can continue to do those things just because that's what you do, just because that's who you are, but not because you're not enough yet. Hmm. Very much reminds me of one of my favorite Carl Jung quotes. You must love the thing you want to change. Mm. It's powerful. Okay. We are about 45 minutes in. We're going to stop here. I'm going to lose my mind because this is exactly the conversation I was dying to have with you. And then we'll come back for episode two and we'll dig in more to next steps. I want to know... If we don't rise to the level of our goals, but we fall to the level of our systems, I want you to talk to us a little bit about building systems and the mistakes that you see people make often and some of the real hacks that you see people put in. And they're probably not hacks. They're probably thoughtful, mindful sure. things. All right. So we'll stop here and we'll wrap it up for today. But then next week, we'll go to episode two. Thank you, James. Okay, guys, I totally wasn't kidding. That was an amazing conversation, right? And I loved his statement. Every action we take is a vote for the kind of person we want to become. 
I also really connected with his path to establishing habits by thinking about the person you want to become and then imagining what that person would do. For me, that totally translates to imagining what kind of leaders that we want to be and creating habits around that to let our behavior lead the way. It's all about building systems. Woo, not easy, but completely doable. It's such a theme in his book, and it's such a possible path. It's a lot to think about, but in a good way. You can find James's book, Atomic Habits, wherever you like to buy books. We'll also post a link in the Dare to Lead episode page on BreneBrown.com. You can find James online at jamesclear.com. He's also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at jamesclear. We will also have those links on the episode page. Then get ready to join us for the next episode, part two with James Clear on Atomic Habits, when we talk about how to build a good habit or break a bad one or both. For me, it was totally both. And we talk about how we create habits in our teams and in our organizations. So we will see you guys next week for that. A couple of don't forget items. Every episode of the Dare to Lead podcast has an episode page on BreneBrown.com. You can listen to every episode and learn more on our episode page with resources, downloads, and transcripts. You can sign up for our newsletter there too. And we have a new website, y'all. It's so beautiful. We've been hard at work over here. You can tell. On the new website, you can find resources by topics and collections. It's so fun. There's an amazing search function. I hope you guys can have some time to play around on it. Thanks, friends. Stay awkward, brave, and kind. Dare to Lead is produced by Brene Brown Education and Research Group. Music is by The Sufferers. Get new episodes as soon as they're published by following Dare to Lead on your favorite podcast app. We are part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more award-winning shows at podcast.voxmedia.com. Tell me where